0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Peacock. Sometimes in the course of psychotherapy, there can come a point where the therapist says something so real, so raw, so deeply true, so unexpected, and soul stirring that the client, the patient, just begins to pour tears. Their face twitches. They find themselves kind of struggling to breathe. And it's, it's the most powerful thing to witness or to experience it. I've been on both sides. And to experience is to feel so known, so heard, and so surprised. Because again, what I think brings forth these tears is when the therapist is able to point out something that the pa- patient or client didn't fully see themselves. And this actually happened to me a few weeks ago. I was reading an iTunes review <laughs> of all things of Back from the Abyss. And let me read it. But the effect was, uh, and again, who wrote, whoever wrote this, thank you so much. It was, well, you'll hear what happened. So I read this and I just started crying. I just cried and cried. And and then I read it a few minutes later to my wife and I cried and I read it to my mom and I cried and it was because it was so true and unexpected. And it was just like what happens in therapy. I think when you have somebody point something out that you didn't really know, but so true. So here's what it says. Uh, This is a review from December 6th, 2021. Dr. Hecock's work on back from the abyss captures something that I've never been able to articulate in a succinct or concise way, which is everything I love about psychiatry and why. For those of us who have dedicated our lives to this field, a field that is so often misunderstood, dismissed, undervalued, this podcast is a love letter to it That's where I started to cry and Dr. Heacock infuses each episode sorry and Dr. Heacock infuses each episode with sentiments I've long held of passion, fascination, and appreciation. yes, it's so true I'd never thought of. Back from the Abyss has a love letter. I've joked that it's my garage band and, and been more accurate that it's my passion project, but it is a love letter. Whoever wrote this, you are so right on. It's, this is a love letter to psychiatry, psychiatry with all its warts and faults and problems and the people who've been harmed by psychiatry, but it is, it's a love letter to psychiatry. This podcast is a love letter to my past, current, and future patients, and it's a love letter to all of you who listen, some of whom I've heard from by email or text or even on the video calls I did last year. And and all those I'll never meet, but I do feel like there's this really profound connection that we have, whether you're in Adelaide, Australia, or Decatur, Georgia, or Fort Collins. <laughs> so... Thank you so much, writer. This, um, you hit me right in the heart with that. And, um, yeah, this is a garage band and it's a passion project, but I think mostly it's a love letter for all of you. Okay. Let me pull myself together. In today's episode, I sit down with my number one go-to psychiatrist for second opinions on difficult cases. Psychiatry can feel so isolating. In my private practice, it's totally easy to go weeks or even months without having any direct contact with another psychiatric colleague. I remember hearing from various attendings during my medical training that knowing what you don't know and knowing when to ask for help are two of the most critical qualities of a competent physician. And I've been so fortunate to have Dr. Dan Fisher as a consultant and friend over the years to help me when I didn't know what to do. Dan co-founded the Gareth Fisher Institute in Boulder, which has been Colorado's preeminent ECT center for many years. In addition to being an expert on ECT, Dan consults on difficult cases of treatment-resistant depression for psychiatrists all over Colorado. In this episode, Dan and I explore the complex and ambiguous nature of treatment-resistant depression. And then we move on to discuss the relative merits and risks of ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, versus ketamine, versus TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And finally, we touch on a new improved version of TMS called SNT, or Stanford neuromodulation therapy, which could turn out to be a much more efficacious version of TMS. One of the things I love about making this podcast is, well, number one, I've gotten to highlight some of the amazing stories of some of the patients I've worked with for years. And number two, it's been so fun to make episodes with some of my favorite clinicians in Colorado and people who I've collaborated with, people who I look up to, people who really changed my practice. And in season one, I did an episode with Amy Indermuel, my go-to OCD expert, you know, I've done episodes with Saj Razvi, my trauma expert. And today I drove down to Boulder to see my number one go-to psychiatrist console guy. Every doc needs at least one or two go-to people to get, you know, a second opinion. I love a good second opinion. It's so hard to find one. You know, I've sent patients other places for second opinions, and so often I'm disappointed. And, you know, when I've sent uh, patients over the years to my guest today, Dr. Dan Fisher. Not only does Dan always call me with a really detailed, well thought out synthesis, but I get these amazing notes, you know, multi page, very well thought out notes. And it's such a gift because, you know, as a psychiatrist, when we're, it's already a pretty isolating thing to do. And when we're struggling with someone and we need help and we don't know where to go just to know that Dan's down the road road in Boulder and can help me out. That's just uh, amazing things. So Dan, it's good to be here.
1: Thanks so much, Craig. Yeah, uh, That was an amazing introduction. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, you're welcome. It's been great to collaborate with you for sure as well.
0: Yeah. So I thought maybe we'd just start off with this whole idea of what is treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant mood disorder? How do you think about that, particularly as a you know, as a psychiatrist that people come to for second or third opinions, opinions—you know, kind of the last stop. You know, I think of Garrett Fisher and you as a place where people come where they're desperate, where they're not getting help anywhere else. Sure.
1: Well, let's start, because uh, you and I have talked about this sort of stuff a lot, is even what is the definition of depression itself. Uh, then we'll get to treatment-resistant depression, but depression is such a heterogeneous entity. A lot of what psychiatrists do and part of the – interest in what we do and maybe arguably the fun of it is trying to tease apart uh what the nature of depression is in in a strict research term the the idea of treatment resistant depression as you know is failing it's it's very reductionistic it's failing two trials adequate trials of antidepressant medications that renders you quote treatment resistant and um you know, it's, it's kind of a pretty horrible reductionistic definition, if you think about it, because once again, we want to approach that question of what, what is, what's going on with this patient in not such a simple way, like, well, he's failed two trials of med, so do I do a third, a fourth, a tenth? Do I do ketamine now? Do I send them to some form of psychotherapy? Or even that definition, Dan, um, two trials, two adequate trials of antidepressants.
0: What's an adequate trial? And what does that mean? And number two, so many meds that we call antidepressants are not. I mean, have talked a lot on this podcast how I think SSRIs are not, in fact, antidepressants for most people. They're anti-neuroticism. They're anti-obsessional, anti-ruminative mm-hmm. meds, which can help depression kind of secondarily by dialing down those
1: systems. But they're not... They're not bona fide antidepressants, I would argue. Sure. And, and once again, from a research point of view, they're going to be, it's going to be antidepressants, almost regardless of what the, again, that varied cause or etiology is the word we use for the depression. So if, even if it's bipolar depression, some people probably make it into these studies with an undiagnosed or heretofore undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and they failed Prozac and then maybe Zoloft. An adequate trial would be based on. Adequate dose for at least let's say six or eight weeks on that medicine, but um, you know that would be considered a, a treatment resistance right there. Just uh, plain, plain and simple. So again, we like to go. You and I and most of our colleagues um, like to go a little bit deeper into what it what it could mean, and maybe even use a little bit of an algorithm. Um, trying to find the sort of the root cause of why an individual patient who's not a statistic in a research study is not responding so uh, examples might be we want to rule out the the big things like is there a substance abuse problem that's actually co-occurring with their depression and maybe ultimately the the main cause of it like smoking you know an eighth of an ounce of marijuana every day or drinking a quart of vodka that will certainly make you look very depressed we want to rule that out. We want to rule medical issues out, like sleep apnea or hypothyroidism or B12 deficiency. Um, so, you know, we we will want people to go through a decent medical workup looking for those really common things that can exist and can mimic or worsen depression. Then there's psychiatric comorbidities, stuff that you are much more expert than I about, like PTSD, you know, trauma history, uh, access to Pathology is a fancy word for, you know, personality disorders. Could that be playing a role in a person's depression? And then within the realm of psychiatry or or psychiatric diagnoses, there's psychotic-type depressions, which are treated, uh, it's probably a qualitatively different animal, different disease. And probably the biggest one for me, and I wonder if this is big in your practice as well, is ruling out whether the person maybe has not been diagnosed yet, but actually has a bipolar spectrum disorder. And sometimes, you know, we have a way to diagnose that, that sort of, um, you know, according to our diagnostic manual, which is a, a, a Bible of sorts that changes every 10 years, which is sort of interesting itself. But we, we have one criterion, which is you have had to have gone through a manic or low-grade manic episode to be bipolar. But that's probably the tip of the iceberg of people we might consider bipolar. There's a lot that haven't quite had that experience. They have a lot of depression, but there's then a lot of other variables we look for that make us say, you know what? I, I think this is a person I'd like to treat as if, quote-unquote, as if they are bipolar, and that may be the reason they're treatment resistant because they've been getting oodles of antidepressants for the last ten years and never really a bona fide trial of mood stabilizing medications.
0: Mm-hmm. It's almost like going back to the, back to that definition of two med failures. It's almost in thinking in my practice whether people have two or three med failures or twenty five. Um, it. For me, it almost always comes back to this question of trauma or substances. Because mm-hmm. it seems like if you choose an adequate antidepressant, if you have two or three tr- trials of a decent antidepressant, adequate trials, something's probably going to shift. But people come in these long lists. I've been on everything. Mm-hmm. you know. And so when I hear I've been on everything, I think trauma. Interesting. Th- yeah, and I think uh, weed, cannabis, <laughs> and I think... Personality. Mm-hmm. Something is some kind of self-defeating or borderline personality structure, or something. Because uh, you know, this whole idea of treatment-resistant depression is really you know, I like that you talk about sore throat. I think of it as like treatment-resistant leg pain. Mm. You know, if you say, Well, I have treatment-resistant leg pain and nothing works, well, it seems like question one is what kind of leg pain are we talking about? Like what is this treatment-resistant depression? It's this final common pathway. It's this very broad term, but it's, it's so broad as to almost be meaningless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We throw it around in psychiatry, like it's a thing.
1: Right. And even the fact that you and I, who, you know, we've both been doing this in, in the decades now, not in the months or years, uh, might even have, a, what, what they might call interrelator poor reliability. We might see the same person who let's say is treatment resistant and you'll, you'll think weed and trauma. And I might go, bipolar. <laughs> so. I probably think that too.
0: I mean, more and more, I don't think you and I've talked about this, but more and more I'm seeing that it seems like there's two buckets of depression. There's the huge bipolar tent, bipolar spectrum, which is very large. And it it's probably characterized you know, by depression that tends towards seasonality, tends towards hypersomnia, tends towards early onset. And then there's everything else Mm. which sometimes is called unipolar or major depression. But I'm wondering if it's more the, the non-bipolar depression is actually largely anxiety-fueled, neuroticism-fueled, trauma-fueled. It, it's, it's, it has its core in anxiety. Because if you think about non-bipolar depression, it's, I, I would argue it's classically characterized by insomnia. You know, if you, In the DSM, they talk about... MDD, major depressive disorder, you can have insomnia or hypersomnia, which to me is like saying, if you had a skin disorder, you can either have clear skin or cystic acne. <laughs> right. It presents Red
1: lesions or brown lesions. Yeah. So we,
0: how can major depression either have insomnia? or hyperside. that makes right, no sense right. to me. I'm
1: just thinking it it speaks to sort of that we are still arguably in an infancy in our field. You know, again back to the sore throat, we have a way to know with a a biomarker called a strep test whether you have strep and then we have a intervention that has basically a virtually 100% success rate and sadly we do not yet have anything close to that in our field. We have people who at least Like you and I try to take some time to try to tease things apart, but until we have some more objective biomarkers or even psychomarkers, things that are sort of a test that has some great and well-established validity and reliability from clinician to clinician, validity means it actually is testing what we call it. It's a real result, and reliability means that you and I both would come to the same conclusion. So we're not there yet, correct? (laughs) Right, correct.
0: I'm wondering. Let's just look at a general kind of presentation. So let's say when you get someone who has uh, objectively severe depression, disabling, chronic, has had a number of what appear to be fairly adequate med trials. How do you, in general, think about uh, is it time for electroconvulsive therapy or not? Because again, this is you are a go-to for that. But you know, as I've also seen on your second evaluations, your second opinions, that you give a lot of thought to all the other options, what's been tried, what hasn't been tried. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of think about the typical patient who shows up clearly with a you know, severe disabling depression and has had a few med trials, how do you think ECT or not? Right.
1: Well, I'll back up again and say that that would be the first, uh, the first order of business is to determine, in my opinion, whether maybe this is a heretofore undiagnosed bipolar illness, and in somebody who maybe again for a decade has been only on antidepressants, again, it's like the sore throat where only they've gotten Tylenol and ibuprofen, and then somebody finally comes along and does a a rapid strep test and and finally treats it properly so i I wouldn't necessarily go to ECT in such a patient I've had uh I don't know maybe twenty percent of the people I see. Uh, I feel that there's something like that that's sufficiently untested that it should be done first, as long as the acuity, the how sick the patient is, uh, is not so horrible that we need to act sooner than later. So I want to rule out whether there's the bipolar possibility. And it's, again, just a rule out. It's It's often just a... Uh, sadly, an educated guess at best, based on a number of factors that you alluded to already. And then, of course, also looking for maybe a not-so-obvious psychotic depression, because that often needs a different form of treatment. But beyond that, it, it boils down to how sick are they? Uh, at the time I'm seeing them, invariably they will have been sent by some thoughtful clinician like yourself who has gone through a great assessment, given them uh, different trials of different types of medications, sent them to different types of therapies, and they're still suffering. And uh, so it's a matter of knowing and being able to explain to that person what is the statistical likelihood that that next medicine trial, if they left my office and did did one, would have of working versus ECT. And thankfully, there's still a tool, old and ill-reputed as it might be, with ECT where the answer is almost always it's a much better chance coming out of ECT that you're going to get what you need out of it. And unfortunately, uh, with More than a few medication failures, we now know from uh, the STAR-D study that the chances of getting remission from that, let's say that fourth med trial, is something in the range of 13%. So that, that sort of data helps me inform patients. Yeah, you could try, you know, four, five, six more trials, and you will probably get it right, but it may take a year. And ECT might have fifty or sixty percent remission rate for for what you have, and so that could get done within two to six weeks. You know?
0: Yeah, um, I just want to step back to that idea of psychotic depression. You know, I would uh, I would argue that severe depression is delusional, like in an existential way. You know, I'm a burden. My family would be better off without me. My children don't need me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a worthless you know piece of shit. I should have never been born, like I'm a stain upon the earth. I mean, just these shame and really delusional. I mean, mm. not delusional <laughs> in the way I think psychiatrists usually think of delusional, but some listeners might find it helpful just to have you kind of differentiate what you're talking about when you say psychotic depression
1: first versus, versus what I'm talking about right. kind of this. Well, actually, I really like that you brought up those things because I my threshold, and, and maybe you know this about me, my threshold for calling somebody, possibly bipolar is pretty low uh, compared to maybe some other clinicians. Likewise, I'm like you, I see psychosis maybe where others don't because it doesn't have to be the more textbook flagrant examples. But I'll I'll share a great story of someone from my training that was the more flagrant example with somebody with a classic, we call it a mood congruent, somatic bodily, in other words, delusion this woman who was constipated, which happens to be a physiologic response to severe biologically-based depression, she was constipated and therefore made the conclusion that her feces was was there in her body, but it wasn't coming out the normal way. It was coming out from her pores mm-hmm. of her skin, and she was convinced that she saw it and smelled it, and you could not divorce her from that belief. Um, So that is the flagrant form of uh, delusional um, material, let's say, that might render a patient an excellent candidate for ECT or maybe combinations of meds that involve antipsychotics with antidepressants. But I like your idea that the concept that there are these, that almost everybody with a, a real deep depression has, at the very least, I call it maybe the mountain out of a molehill phenomenon, which is a form of delusion. It's I have a problem, a, a situational thing or a life issue, and I've now catastrophized it to the nth degree. That I, I actually would treat that patient as if they had a psychotic depression and, and maybe use the, the, the medications one would use for that or be a little quicker to go to ECT. Um, you might see it differently, but I think even, you know, I, I'm, I'm quick to put that person in that category and give the quote benefit of the doubt that maybe that's what's making this person not respond to the Prozac alone. Let's add some antipsychotic like Abilify or Risperdol to that Prozac, and if that doesn't work, maybe we'll try ECT. Mm
0: hmm. You know, in this huge bucket of treatment-resistant mood disorder, treatment-resistant depression, who do you see now in 2021 as the primary primary best candidates, the people that come in your office, and you think, okay, ECT is what we should do, (laughs) clearly? Okay.
1: I have an easy answer because it's people like you out there in the world that make the answer really easy. Okay? (laughs) I'll explain probably 9 out of 10 people that I see for an ECT consult will have tried and I and I hand them a list of here's all, like pretty much all the meds in the whole arsenal that we have in psychiatry and it's amazing people will ha- will literally have circled you know 42 out of 57 meds or more so we know they've done that they've done CBT DBT all these psychotherapies they've done that and you have done ketamine or uh, Dr. Sugarman or Suddeth in Boulder have done TMS. Nine out of 10 have done at least the meds with either ketamine and or TMS. So in a sense, that makes my job a little easier at times because I, we really are the, and people sort of fear this about ECT, but that really is when it's arguably the last resort in a sense. <music>
0: up until four years ago when I started doing ketamine, I sent a lot more people your way. I probably That's true. sent, I don't know, a handful of people every year to you for ECT. And I would say, you got to see Dr. Fisher. But um, since I started doing ketamine four years ago, it's it's a much smaller number. I send maybe one or two people a year. I just see. thought you didn't like me anymore. No, I like you. <laughs> so I'm wondering, are you seeing that, that uh, either referral numbers are down and or maybe if they're not down the people that are coming are more likely to have tried ketamine as you know an intermediary before they come to ect
1: that's a great question and the answer is that they have we our volume has been down and there's probably a medico economic reason for that i don't know if i should go into the economic uh, we do have more competitors in our in our midst uh but i think the medicos part of it is what you're saying there are now other viable options and uh i it, literally 10 years ago or i don't know 5 years ago it might have been that 9 out of 10 ect consults i do would have tried tms and now we have ketamine in the mix so again 9 out of 10 will often have tried both of those things so just you know, again, the statistical chance that one or the other of those things will have worked is now that that much greater. Yeah. So and I'm I'm happy for that. I'm not <laughs> yeah I'm not wedded to continue to do ECT forever. So Yeah,
0: you know, there's emerging data that ketamine is not as effective for geriatric patients. If, you know, for patients over seventy ish, mm-hmm. seventy-five that ketamine just doesn't seem to do and I've seen that in my practice. It I have a few people that's helped but it just doesn't seem to have the same. Uh, effect. But
1: that seems to be,
0: I don't, that's so, you know, maybe there's some sort of um, diminished BDNF um, Hmm. burst because, you know, ketamine really causes a huge BDNF cascade burst. Maybe uh, ketamine also changes sleep architecture. So maybe that's less responsive in you know, older folks. I have a personal mm-hmm. theory that ketamine uh, improves sort of glial cell metabolic waste dumping from the brain, and maybe that doesn't. Maybe just the it's brain just, doesn't it's work as well, and so kind of these. You know, I think of ketamine as like compost for the brain, and maybe there's the the geriatric brain just is kind of like old spent I, soil. Right. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I think it's just that's like a it just like good point. Whereas, you know, I think yeah. of uh,
1: geriatric depression that that's it home run for ECT, right? at least. Absolutely, and in fact, I was going to say that. That's where it actually, even non-psychotic depression in the elderly, it works better still than the same type of depression in a 32-year-old or a 25-year-old, and uh, I can't explain that at all. Uh, I I have no good explanation. I, I think ketamine and ECT probably do have some common final pathway with that BDNF narrative, uh, that you just talked about, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, like the fertilizer of the brain, ECT does that uh, as well as ketamine uh, pumps that up. So who knows? I mm-hmm. mean, but ECT, as they always say, it's sort of um, it, it's shotgun approach. It is so macroscopic. You're doing so many things to the brain. You're pushing on it in so many different ways. That maybe for a geriatric depression patient. It's a completely different mechanism, um, but way above my pay grade to understand. <laughs> yeah, there's been some writings uh, sort of theorizing that
0: ketamine is kind of a chemical ECT. Mm. And, and I think e- even you saying like it's a big push on all the s- systems of the brain, electroconvulsive mm-hmm. therapy, and ketamine is too. It's affecting many things. When you look at the recent review articles, how does ketamine work? They usually mm-hmm. list five to eight putative mechanisms. Know, But I also think it's really interesting uh, when people come in and ask me, you know, what's going to be the scheduling for ketamine, the timing? I think a lot about ECT in that it's like there's an acute phase Mm -hmm. where you're doing some number of treatments to get people well or in remission. And then for many people, you're doing some number of treatments over increasing span of time to sort of keep people well. And then mm-hmm. some people benefit from ongoing ECT maintenance or ketamine maintenance. Mm-hmm. So that makes me wonder if actually that, that metaphor that the thought that ketamine is, is chemical ECT that there's something to that because sure. they, they have a very similar pattern, the way they're used.
1: Clinically. Right. Right. And I always, I, I, you know, I'm waiting for that data to come out about ketamine or even TMS because uh, ECT finally, maybe in the last 10 or 15 years, has a decent set of data points for what we should do after that acute phase, that initial phase of two to six weeks to get somebody better. And interestingly, there are some studies now where they're comparing ketamine to ECT, randomizing people who are otherwise ECT candidates to one or the other and doing a very similar acute treatment cor- course followed by uh, a maintenance treatment course and following them for about six months, that's going to be really interesting to, to look at. But long before, even when TMS first came out, as an ECT provider, I was convinced that there's going to need to be some maintenance provision. It just makes, I don't know, it's psychiatry 101 that mm-hmm. you need to maintain that which is has been proved to be helpful. And a lot of the TMS providers from 10 years ago somehow came up with this narrative that I honestly found a little bit hard to believe, which is that there was a subset of patients who were kind of magically cured for good. And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of not turned out to be so true. Yeah. Uh, and nor will it be for ketamine, and nor is it for ECT. The relapse rates during the acute phase, um, during the maintenance phase, that six-month period after the acute treatment, if you don't do maintenance medicine and or maintenance ECT, which is just some treatments to sort of boost the effect, the relapse rates incredibly high. It's it's over eighty percent. So mm-hmm. another way that ketamine, I think, is a lot like ECT
0: is that. Uh, I remember when I was in residency, a big study came out, actually it was done from some people at Brown, where they looked at what happens to people who go into remission with ECT. One group goes off their meds and one group stays on their meds. Mm-hmm. And you know this data, but it showed that the people that go off their meds plummeted. Plummeted. Yeah. And that same thing with ketamine. You know, so many people come to me for ketamine and they say, oh, I want to do this ketamine treatment and this way i can get off my meds Mm -hmm. and you know a few years ago when i started doing this i thought yeah that'll be good and now i've realized the vast majority of people are not going to get off most of their meds Mm. and when we try to do that especially if we try to get people off lamotrigine or i mean sometimes we can get people off atypicals but you know more often than not it seems like the ketamine is kind of rebooting or juicing or or you know composting the brain to help the meds Mm -hmm. work better but it's it's typically not going to replace that. And that's what I, I kind of think of ECT the same way.
1: I'm curious to tell me what you are doing, you know, in your sort of heuristic approach, your sort of trial and error approach, um, with it, because again, there isn't great data yet. What what is the sort of spectrum that you see in that post acute ketamine phase? How often are you doing ketamine treatments, and how does that vary um, from person to person?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Well, unlike ECT, you know, which has been around for decades, and I think the protocols are pretty well worked out. Mm-hmm. Like if you start doing ECT now, there's good data to guide you, whether you're doing you know, unilateral, bilateral, you know, how, much, um, how long the seizure needs to be and, and how to think about seizure threshold. But with, EC or with ketamine, it's still some of the most important questions haven't been answered. So we know ketamine is super helpful for a lot of people, but what dose what route, what frequency? Mm-hmm. Do people need to have a fully dissociative psychedelic experience? I mean, this is all super controversial and it's being studied now. Mm-hmm. But what I've seen in doing you know, well over two thousand treatments in the last few years is that the standard protocol of starting at zero point five milligram per kilogram, that is a lot like, you know, two hundred milligram ibuprofen for a severe headache. Hmm. I think it will help. It's not the same as 600 to 800 milligrams. Mm. It's not. And, you know, this, I heard a podcast the other day where they said, uh, the expert said, there's no dose response curve with ketamine. And I thought, that's insane. Now, this wasn't a doc who does ketamine. Mm-hmm. There's a huge dose response curve. So, you know, what's the, um, even just what's the response and remission rate with ketamine? I think it so depends on what dose you're using. Mm. You know, I usually start people kind of right at the edge of the psychedelic dissociative threshold and the second treatment go to a fully immersive treatment. And typically people can be deeply catastrophically depressed and within two, usually maybe three treatments can go into remission. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the data, you talk to people who run the kind of low-dose, high-frequency ketamine clinics, they're starting with six and they're often doing a whole course of six, eight, ten more treatments over a month or two, and they're getting pretty good results but at you know much greater cost and interesting and you know, effort for everybody. So There's involved. a
1: monetary incentive, arguably, to doing two hundred milligrams of ibuprofen more frequently and, and you're giving people by by analogy six hundred to eight hundred, but only a couple of times maybe, and you're seeing some, some more robust response yeah. from that. Did you experiment initially with using the more sort of let's call it studied or standard of care point, you know, 0.5 milligram per kilogram. Um, and just come to your own conclusion that it just wasn't as impactful as when you would go up on that same yeah. individual even. Yeah.
0: Well, it did start low in the first year, but it was super interesting. So, you know, some percentage of people that do ketamine find it very frightening mm-hmm. and I have had a number of patients over the years who had a frightening experience, and they said, "Okay, next time, I want to go lower. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want it scary. I want it to be gentle." Like, okay, fine. So we drop it significantly, and then they're texting me or calling me three days later. Like, I'm no better, mm. and they're coming back saying, "Give me what you gave me before. Frighten me? No, right. <laughs> and again, maybe it's like an act, you know, active uh, no sibo or whatever. Like the, mm-hmm. the scary experience is thinking, okay, this must be powerful medicine. We can't rule that out." But over and over, when people have had a sub dissociative experience or when we've lowered it significantly because of nausea or whatever some untoward effect, almost invariably, the feedback I get is yeah, that was a more gen- that was a more gentle treatment, and it didn't work nearly as well interesting you know I think that you know I call the you know the full deep dip or you know the fully immersive treatments those uh, are intense and can be a little overwhelming at times, but I'm seeing people get you know lasting sometimes. Many weeks or months wow. of remission from those interesting, but i th- I think a lot of the ketamine clinics where they're doing you know high numbers high volume don't want to deal with that because you know a lot of people have some intense kind of trauma catharsis and you know there can be sobbing and shrieking and crying and mm. you know it, it can be uh, psychologically really intense you know we are trained to sit with people, and that doesn't scare us I think right. And maybe other specialties in medicine find it a little scary to sit with someone who's having a full-on kind of trauma catharsis as they're coming out
1: of mm-hmm. you know,
0: high-dose ketamine.
1: And, and what do you find sort of calms them or helps them get through that just uh, in, in, in the moment?
0: Well, yeah, in the early days of doing ketamine, I remember seeing people sometimes come out crying, sobbing, wailing, and I thought, oh, no, you know, bad trip or mm-hmm. bad experience. But I started getting feedback, people saying, oh, no, that was exactly what I needed, because wow. I was calling these people later in the day, are you okay? <laughs> and, they, and inevitably, they said, No, that was so good. Wow. I have a cu- couple people with sexual trauma history that when they came out, they just vomited, 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 even with Zofran or scopolamine on board. And again, they called me later in the day. They said, That was such a purge. It was, wow. it was what I needed. I needed to just, I was like purging out trauma, kind of wow. spiritual metaphor trauma. So it turns out that, uh, much like with other psychedelic works, sometimes the most painful-looking mm. experience from the clinicians, from the docs' perspective, when you hear the subjective report from people, they say that was exactly what I needed. Interesting. Like, that was just, yeah. inc- and, yeah. you know.
1: Well, and and <laughs> I was going to say there's clearly a similar kind of dose response curve with ECT, but the people are anesthetized, so they're <laughs> they're not aware of it. So I, I can't attribute it to any sort of sort of um, Psychospiritual effect, but clearly, there is a dose response in, in terms of the uh, electrical stimulus. The amount that of electricity you use um, to invoke the seizure is part of the therapy, and you know, having an adequately long and robust seizure is part of it. So And, and we, we have that as true for medicines. You know, two milligrams of Prozac isn't going to cut it for your anxiety disorder, uh, but 20 might. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised by that, but um, it is amazing that that's not really correct me if I'm wrong, well studied yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the value of those higher doses or uh, or you tell me if I'm wrong, you know the correlation between a subjective sense of improvement or, or objectively measured improvement and having had that greater dissociative effect or um, having the, the the higher doses do that. Yeah, it's
0: being studied now, but mm-hmm. there's just, I've seen some little, you know, 10 person pilot studies where they go, mm. oh, we compared 0.75 to 0.5. So there are some really small studies, but gotcha. but this, you know, I think this important question like, is a fully dissociative ketamine treatment, you know, at the psychedelic level, is that in general a significantly more effective treatment? I mean, mm. I mean that question has not been conclusively.
1: And prudent. let me ask this to you. I mean, I, I I use the term, I don't want to put words in your mouth that it's based on some psycho-spiritual effect of the drug. Um, you know, talk about patients, let's say, with a trauma who said, that's just what I needed. Do you think it is something psychologic or um, less effable, <laughs> less describable in any biologic terms? Or do you think the higher dose does have some greater you know, maybe BDNF-enhancing effects that leads to those downstream uh, neuroplastic effects that we believe is part of what makes the ketamine and the ECT and TMS and medications successful. Mm -hmm. What's your theory there? I I think it's both.
0: You know, for years, uh, I don't think I was taught this in residency, but for years when I've evaluated for trauma with people in initial appointment, I've used the word haunted. I think ever since residency, I say, are you haunted by, you know, things that happened to you as a kid, or haunted by, you know, sexual encounters, or does anything haunt you? Hmm. And sometimes a lot of patients are like, why are you using that word? I said, well, I don't know, but that's what I mean. And but a lot of people totally hone in on that. But you know, in recent years, as I've um, just learned a, l- a lot more about trauma and met some amazing people on this podcast and and talk with with trauma experts, I really come to believe that that's actually a really accurate word that trauma haunts us in this kind of psycho-spiritual way Mm. what does that actually mean in your western allopathic medical model i don't know but it is a psycho-spiritual haunting and i i do think the higher doses of ketamine much like dmt with ayahuasca or psilocybin Mm -hmm. i do think there is a Psychospiritual effect. There's a BDNF effect. There's a sleep effect. There's, right, right. there's a you right. know, glutamate effect. But there's also <laughs> this, there's this uh, purging of trauma energy. Mm. I don't sure. know what sure. that is, but you can see it when you sit with people and they describe it after right. they've gone through it.
1: People can't see me, but I'm smirking um, admiringly at you right now for the, the way you're talking about this because it just. I, I think to myself this is what makes our field both frustrating, but mostly incredibly interesting that we don't really know this stuff yet, you Mm -hmm. know, but, but um, there can be elements from uh, the reductionistic model of how, how neurochemistry has changed or brain structure to something that you might call psycho or spiritual. Um, So it's, it's kind of cool, but (laughs) Mm. good luck with us really ever figuring it all out. You know, it does. I think psychiatry is the most interesting field of medicine. Mm -hmm. No doubt. (laughs)
0: of as classic non-responders again so you're seeing people come to you who have tried everything and now you know many have tried ketamine and meds and therapies and been to treatment centers and they come for ect and are are there characteristics of people of patients when they show up and you decide that they're going to do ect that you think "Mm, you know this is not not a hopeful prognosis
1: yeah there is and it's probably the same uh variables that w- would make it true for any somatic or biologically-based treatment. And that would be um, somebody who comes in and literally says the words, let's say they're 25 years old, and I, I'm trying to get their depression history and, and discern whether it's there's been an episodic nature of it, which is much more classic for the biologically-based depression versus more of a chronic state. And they say something like, I've been depressed since I've been four years old, mm-hmm. since I can remember having words to think about it. I thought I thought about death when I was six. And, okay, Mr. Smith, has, has that, you know, you're 25. Did you, have you gone through, I don't know, a few months here or there where you actually felt well? Oh, no, no. So that person, I hate to say it to them, but I – I do share that I have some worry about whether anything is going to alter something that is so entrenched. And again, what is that thing? Hard hard to know. Uh, again, is there some temperamental or biologically based thing, or is it trauma? Of course, you know, I, I asked more than a few questions in that direction, but um, presumably those same people will have been through years of good therapy as well and not responded to that. So that would be a patient that makes me nervous about anything really working. Um, But in the service of knowing that this is somebody who honestly has no other alternatives. I mean, they have been through, you know, I told you I give people a list of 50 plus meds in our armamentarium and they've circled every one. And they've done the TMS and the ketamine and the different psychotherapies and the you know supreme workout workup at a mayo clinic or something like that looking for some strange you know bio uh um, medical or um whatever and i still will do ect on those people and the the happy news is amazingly there's a subset of them that actually do do well but i i kind of forewarn them as i have to forewarn myself going into it that we're probably going to hit a ceiling of success. They're not going to be all of a sudden, uh, you know, become the cheerleader of the uh, football team or something. Mm-hmm. Sort of like the the analogy of, you know, doctor, doctor, after you do this procedure, will I be able to play piano? And if the doctor says, yeah, of course, of course. And, oh, good, I, I, I never played before, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah.
0: What's your threshold number of, treatments of seizures that you think is worth trying before you decide this is just not, Mm. you know. Mm -hmm. Let's say you're not seeing any improvement. I mean, do you do five electroconvulsive treatments? Do you do 10? I mean, what? and I'm sure it varies on the person and Mm -hmm. the age and how desperate they are, but what, what in in your mind, when do you get to a point where, you know, the the chance of anything meaningful happening is
1: really plunging? There, well, thankfully, again, there's some good guidance about w- almost like when there is uh, w- w- what's a minimal number of treatments. Whereby, if you do less than that, even if somebody's doing really well, there's a really high risk of relapse. Or conversely, diminished returns if you go beyond that other large number. And that those numbers are probably about six to up to twenty. And um, and maybe if you look at an arguably a normal curve, it might be more like 8 to 16. That's where the vast majority of people will fit into. To um, start to respond. To start to respond or, or to get their maximal response, mm. usually by 16 for most people. But I will push it beyond that when, again, in a, in a risk-benefit analysis, the alternative is n- nothing better because they've tried mm-hmm. literally almost everything. And I have a, I have a great story about that um, uh, my mentor dr. Frank Guerra, who had been doing ECT for decades before before me and he and I shared a case uh, maybe 15 years ago of an elderly woman that seemed like she had a severe depression but it was so it was it was near catatonic catatonia is where you're hardly moving not eating not drinking not talking it's almost like you're in a coma but your eyes are open and you're otherwise actually kind of aware people say after the fact they were aware so she was in that state and she had lost you know 30 pounds over six months and we were about I don't know maybe 14 treatments into this ECT acute bilateral the the more robust form of it and she was just not budging And I think she was probably in her mid-60s and, you know, just on a pure chronology point of view, just based on her medical issues, this is somebody who could theoretically have 30 more years ahead of her. But the choice at that point, if we were to stop ECT, because she had tried truly everything else, was nursing home till, you know, till she died, probably from inanition, fancy word for, you know, not eating or drinking. So I discussed it with Dr. Guerra and and I was in kind of in this mode of, I really feel like we have to stop because I have done 15 or 16. And he said, the alternative is just simply much worse. And we did two or three more. And just by, uh, it was a beautiful thing. There was like applause on the unit because two to three treatments more, she was up feeding herself, talking. It was literally like a light switch went on. So, um, I, I've always reminded myself of that. Where it may feel like a lot of treatment, but when the chips are down and the alternative is, you know, clearly much worse, we we will go to twenty or even more sometimes. But truth be known, I think I've never really seen anybody need much more than twenty, um, and if or if they haven't gotten better by then you know when i have gone beyond that it's pretty rare that they do mm-hmm. yeah
0: For, for years, I thought of three treatments in psychiatry as kind of the miracle triad, the top three, the things that made psych, psychiatry just completely thrilling at times. And in no particular order, those are ECT and clozapine and suboxone, buprenorphine. Huh. And for a long time, I gave a couple talks on that. I remember mm-hmm. at Grand Rounds and just said, you know, th- these are three treatments which can completely change <clears throat> excuse me the course of an illness so fast in mm-hmm. a way that seems almost miraculous. And lately, you know, I've, I'm adding ketamine to that list. And mm-hmm. uh, so this is a segue to thinking, again, more about ketamine and ECT, because, you know, I think you and I would probably both agree, at least as of now, 2021, for people that have failed a bunch of meds and failed therapies and psychotherapies, that really we're looking at the two best options is ECT and ketamine. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about risk and benefit of those, uh, you know, ECTs, very safe, but it clearly has the, you know, the short term memory effects. But I have a number of patients who are absolutely insistent that they have long term you know, memory, mm-hmm. memory cognitive damage from ECT. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I didn't you know, mm-hmm. you know a number of these were you know, treatments done back in the 80s, or you know, but I have a couple of patients who had well over 100 ECT treatments. and And so I'm wondering how you think about long term. You know, cognitive and memory impairment—is you know, mm-hmm. that related to number of treatments? To bilateral versus unilateral—is you know have protocols changed such that people getting ECT today are less likely to
1: have that? Mm-hmm. Wow! Uh, is this the five-hour podcast? <laughs> right. Because I think that's what we need for this. this is this... I know this is a huge topic, but, <laughs> but and it's the single most important or talked-about topic in my consultations. I literally spend three hours for an ECT consultation. And probably it feels like to me, two hours and 55 minutes of it are about cognitive side effects. So if
0: people, um, so if people yeah. listen, listen in on your sessions, you're oh, talking, yeah. you're talking cognitive people listen on my sessions. They're hearing me talk about weed and sleep. And I've <laughs> right. told my kids before, I'm kind of a weed and sleep doctor. Uh-huh. It's like I'm ta- constantly talking to people about marijuana, but
1: sure. Go ahead. Well, Here's what I reduce it to to people. Um, so, first of all, the biggest fear that people have, and and it, you know, maybe it's related to this patient you're describing or the couple of patients, is they fear that they've had brain damage. So that's one thing we could say with definitive certainty is that there is zero brain damage from ECT. In fact, that brain-derived neurotrophic factor narrative is a great one to use for patients because. ECT, like ketamine, increases BDNF. By so doing, it actually reverses cortical and hippocampal atrophy that comes with chronic and severe depression. It sort of revivifies the brain. ECT does that. The very thing that makes you have memory problems, at least for most people temporarily, is actually building back some important brain areas and... um, And that's been shown as well. So I bring that up with patients because, again, I don't want them to leave with a sense that they're fading their loved one or themselves to brain damage from ECT. Now, that said, there is some cognitive side effects that are um, uh, to be expected. And, And to further the analogy with the BDNF, you might say, well, how could you say on the one hand that you're doing a treatment that pumps up the brain, the hippocampus, the seat of learning and memory, and then it causes memory problems. The analogy I use, right or wrong, is what happens to you if you've never been to the gym or haven't been to the gym for like 10 years and you go there and the first week or two you're doing bicep curls. At first you have very, very painful biceps and they're kind of weak and they're not doing that well, but two or three weeks later your bicep is big and strong and and uh, quite functional. So it, the fancy word is hormesis. You're sort of stressing the brain, You're st- like you're stressing that bicep so that it grows later on. Anyway, I go on to that narrative because it's an important thing to sort of divorce people from that assumption that there's going to be brain damage. But what does happen during the treatment with almost certainty? The thing that happens with almost certainty is you will have short-term memory deficits during the three-time-a-week phase, which is the inability to uh, consolidate new memories. So let's say you go out to dinner after your sixth treatment of ECT, you go to the Red Lobster, and then the next morning your your wife quizzes you and said, what would you have at dinner last night? Conceivably, you may not remember even having gone to Red Lobster, let alone the fact that you got the shrimp scampi. So, uh, you know, that's, that happens in, in inevitably to some lesser or greater degree. and But it's equally inevitable that within a month or two of your last acute ECT, the three time a weeker, that that is back to normal and often better than your baseline. Because if this ended up working on your depression, depression has Huge cognitive impact, negative cognitive impact, and probably harkens back to that idea of the atrophied parts of the brain. So um, those people are often doing better memory-wise. Now, there's some people like you've described who, and I've had them for sure, so it's and I've dealt with this question, who after a course of ECT, they usually will ad- acknowledge that their short-term memory is better, but they might say, I, I've lost some chunks from the past. And that's it is not the norm, but I've heard it in a significant minority of patients. And I'm never really sure exactly how to explain it, but I'll share my, my experience with it. I have had the pleasure of knowing that to tell people You just need to do some reminiscence therapy. Go home, look at photo albums of that trip to Hawaii from five years ago that you no longer think you remember. Look at the pictures, talk to your spouse, uh, be reminded of things you've done. And nine out of ten times, those things do come back.
0: Plus, that's a chance for the spouse to say, Oh, it was such an amazing trip. It was so great when really there was a huge fight on the beach (laughs) and talks of divorce. And you could say, oh, we had such a great time. Precisely. Look how happy we were. That's
1: right. That's right. And so, you know, there is that retrograde amnesia for some people. There's so many things beyond ECT that I think explains it. A a big theme I talk a lot about is called state-dependent memory. I I learned this in college in Psychology 101 where a professor said, if you study for an exam drunk, take the test a week later drunk because you'll remember more when you're back in the same, quote, state, in this case intoxicated. Uh, Well, I've seen that. I, I, I imagine you have too with mood disorders when you're in a depression uh, especially the deeper and the more psychotic and the more near catatonic it is the more the following is true when you get better you just that time frame with which in which you were depressed seems like a big blur mm. so that's called state dependent memory and so some people have been sick for years so they may have some altered sense of recollection for that past from that phenomenon mm-hmm. um and then back to the short-term memory problems from the acute ect i've had patients who have called me and maybe you as well six months after they should have been better from that and maybe they had been better from that but they say oh, oh, oh okay dr Heacock, my memory is bad again this ect has lasted so long at messing around my memory well if they'd gotten better and it, almost invariably they would have And now they're worse again, like 95% certainty they're depressed again. And that's the real explanation for the cognitive uh, hiccups that they're now having, or maybe a new medication, or they're back on the bottle of vodka again, or something like that. So you don't recover from the short-term memory deficits during the acute phase, only then to have it come back like a virus that can repeat itself. Um, it only gets better and stays better. And if it's not better, there's usually something else going on to explain it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, another confounding variable I just thought of is as I run through the people that I can think of in my practice who say they've had long-term you know, memory or cognitive deficits. Four that I just are thinking about off the top of my head also have big-time trauma, trauma. history. So that makes that's an interesting thing about state-dependent. That you know, could it have been that? They spent significant periods of their life, you know, dissociated. And so not really taking anything yes. in. And now that they're better, they look back and say, I don't remember my twenties. My twenties are mostly gone. Yes. And that's the fall of ECT, which exactly may or may not be, but it also could be because they were so so deeply in dissociative numbing for a decade that they I, really retain
1: nothing. And I don't I don't like Patient blaming. (laughs) So what I'm about to say may sound like this, but it is. There seems to be you're you're spot on. The demographic of often trauma victims, maybe with sort of you know very unstable bipolar disorder or maybe borderline personality, have the phenomenon of what you've just described most commonly. And the thing that also seems to go with it is they're the ones that are quite angry, even though if ECT arguably saved their lives, and many times it did when they, they did it because they were in the throes of some suicidal deep depression, they they are the ones most angry at me for now giving them this horrible brain damage, dot, dot, dot. Who so, could be angry at you? You're, <laughs> so, you're such a good guy. Oh, <laughs> let, me, let me welcome you to my practice for a few days. <laughs> And that's
0: funny. The other day, my wife, who's a therapist, said, oh, it's such a hard session. This woman argued with me the whole session. I said, that doesn't happen to you a lot. She said, no, people don't argue with me. I said, wow. wow. You I said, come to my world. I, said, I have people arguing with me all the time about Correct. everything. Yes. So anyway. Yeah. yes. yes. <laughs> I wonder if we, uh, I want to make sure we save a little time to talk about TMS. So just to review, you know, I, I see, at least at this point here in 2021, that, you know, for moderate to severe depression, you know, after you've had med trials of adequate duration, of proper choice, and you're properly diagnosed, and you've had good psychotherapy, and you're not abusing substances, and, you know, you've tried to get your ducks in order, and you're not getting better... Ketamine is probably your next best option, unless you're geriatric, unless you're actively substance abusing, psychotic maybe. Yeah, psychotic. Yeah, uh, and that ECT is still again. I would put that in the you know the four miracle treatments of psychiatry. But there's a whole issue of TMS, and you and I talked a little bit about this before the recording. And you know, I I like the idea of TMS that you can just go and um, have these magnets put over your head and get zapped with magnets, and uh, it seems so kind of Star Trek and <laughs> like where we should be going you know, versus taking pills which just you know dissolve and distribute through all your body mm-hmm. compartments and fluids or even ketamine which is super cool treatment but you know what's really the active part of ketamine what's the special juice but mm-hmm. TMS seems like wow this this could be the thing but the data have not to date have not shown TMS to be very robust in terms of you know either response or remission rates in fact you know if we think of Treatment-resistant depression, as you said, you after a few med trials, you're like ten, twelve, thirteen percent chance of improving with a new med, and I think with
1: TMS, it's not much higher. Yeah. I just uh, had had reviewed some of that stuff, and I think if you had failed three med trials, again, you know, one of the definitions of treatment resistance is at least two, but in this case, three med trials, your remission rate with TMS in the conventional sense that it's been done. Uh, which is a six-week course of treatment, was only 17%. And when you, like anything, when you tr- use it in a uh, population that are much less treatment-resistant, those numbers look a lot better. So a lot of TMS practitioners will, they seem to um, parrot an, <laughs> this sort of uh, third, third, and third. Uh, I've heard that so many times now. A third don't respond at all. A third at least have a response, which would be a 50% reduction in their um, depression rating scale, and a third remit, which is they're all better, and then again, there's this narrative that many of them just stay better with you know magically, and that 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 I, it was hard for me to wrap my head around that. But if those numbers are are valid, it's probably a less treatment resistant cohort of patients that that fell into that category, and that 17 percent remission rate, uh, which is only what a few points better than yet another med trial per the star D, um, is, uh, you know, speaks to that. So I, I, yeah, it would be, and maybe it's going to be, um, a a new and better thing with this new protocol they've come up with. So yeah,
0: you sent me an article. I hadn't seen it on SNT, which Mm -hmm. is a new kind of hyper energetic focused uh, TMS protocol. Maybe you could just briefly describe what that is and and what some of this preliminary
1: data shows. And again, full disclosure, I don't do TMS. So maybe, you know, we all have our biases and, um, but this looks really pretty promising. Um, and, and maybe, you know, quantif quantifiably quite a bit different, but small study And I think 29 patients or something. And they basically did uh, something called theta burst, which is the type of magnetic pulses that are given. They, instead of doing one three-minute treatment uh, one time a day for five days a week times six weeks, they did pretty much in five days five times the amount of magnetic pulses. So you're basically in the clinic 10 hours a day for five days, and you're getting the equivalent of 10 treatments, and each treatment is three times longer than the typical ones they used to do. So it's a hugely talk, – talk about dose-response curve. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden, oh, my God, we've discovered two milligrams of Prozac. was not very effective, but when we tried 20 – we got results or the ketamine story that you give. So they've finally, you know, maybe just increased the dose and and then consolidated it in five days instead of six weeks. And then they, there's another um, attribute to this new treatment where they use a functional MRI to more precisely locate in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the area that when it's stimulated by the magnet or the electrical field that is uh, or the electric stimulus that's imparted by the magnetic pulses, it reduces the activity in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is overactive in depression for many people. And so they really fine- tune the localization. Um, I don't you know, I don't know if that's honestly where the money is rather than the fact that they've like, much more than quadrupled the dose of the actual thing. But the results in this small study were very impressive, like 50% remission at the four-week mark. So in other words, four weeks after that first week of treatment, 50% of people were remitted. And in the control group where they used a sham stimulus, it was something like 7% remission or maybe Mm -hmm. even less than that. Maybe it was zero even. So... That's like that the differential response between placebo TMS and real was pretty darn startling. Mm. It's so, so interesting though that it may be
0: that the main reason TMS hasn't worked very well is because it was just Underdose. Underdose. Two
1: milligrams of Prozac.
0: Yeah. Why, why isn't that working? Yeah. But I wonder maybe you have a sense this I don't know, the machine or the equipment that's needed to do, let's say, this SMT protocol, this this data um, burst, I mean, are those million-dollar machines? Are those... No,
1: not, the, not my understanding. Oh, no, okay. I, I have no idea. <laughs> um, no, I think... Well, you know, actually, I can't say for certain. Uh, to do the functional MRI, you need to have a center that can do that. And I think there's mostly academic centers that do that, and then there are some private centers that will do it, probably for a pretty penny that I my guess is insurance will take a long time to come around paying for and the machine, though, I think is the same machine that is in most communities right now. But once again, they're leaving it on for longer, effectively. <laughs> they're
0: turning it up to 11 <laughs> right. instead of 2.2. Exactly. 2. 2. Yeah, That's
1: right. Yeah. So, I, and I don't think there's anything special about the machine. And now, how much do they cost? I, I, I haven't looked into it for a while, but it might be in the realm of like an $80,000 machine, mm. $90,000 machine maybe. And then you have to pay some yearly, you know, like housekeeping fee. So they come in and change the software and, you know, brush it off for you, whatever. Because,
0: you know, I don't know if you've had this. uh, I've had at least two psychiatrists reach out to me in recent years saying, hey, Craig, you want to buy my TMS machine? Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a common one. Which...
0: To me, it's not a winning endorsement of TMS. Maybe they but, thought
1: you were Craigslist. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm imagining if I started calling my psychiatrist colleagues, hey, do you want to come up? I got a bunch of IV bags and ketamine. you, you want to buy <laughs> <Right>. it? <laughs> Actually, I could probably sell it. But, right, right. Um, but it uh, seems funny. like if this if this data holds up, that we may be coming to this interesting new world where for treatment-resistant depression, there's sort of a tripartite approach, again, with ECT as, as the last thing. Sure. And, where we're looking at ketamine, or you know, a high intensity TMS with data burst, and then psilocybin, because mm. I think psilocybin is coming soon, right. and there's some really exciting data about psilocybin with OCD, with dysthymia, with severe depression. Mm-hmm. I think what's super interesting about the psilocybin work is it looks a lot like ketamine in that people mm. are doing intermittent treatments and getting you know weeks to months of Response and from what I've seen, at least in some small trials, high dose psilocybin, so the really intense Mm. uh, experiences, which would be sort of like what I'm doing with ketamine in my clinic, some people are getting many months, like six, eight months of remission from,
1: and that's so atypical for what we normally expect from our patients, and and so yeah, when anything that really does start to approximate a quote cure, it would be pretty amazing. and I think all of these things, if if you don't disagree, will have a role. Even ECT. Oh yeah. EBT, you know, there's going to be patients just because. Again, back to that sore throat analogy of what is depression. There's so many different sort of subtypes, even biologic subtypes, let alone you know the psycho spiritual subtypes, if you will. That there will be a place for all of these things, and because yeah. they're all going to work differently enough. So can um, I point out two of them? And these are actually, yeah. these are both
0: ketamine people and you may remember them. So in 2019, I sent you a woman, actually a geriatric woman who had had tons of treatments, so many of meds and she'd had ketamine and she was basically catatonic, very vegetative. And it, it was a complete miracle. In fact, her family, after the treatment, they all gathered in my office and they sobbed, they oh. hugged me and they sobbed and oh. sobbed and sobbed and said, you saved her life. Oh. I said, I just got her to go see Dr. Fisher. And they said, yeah, <laughs> but you you suggested it, and you were the one that really convinced her. Because, mm. of course, that's hard with ECT, because usually if people need ECT, mm. They it's hard to get them to consent because they're so...
1: Scared. Brain damaged. Yeah, damage.
0: yeah they're, well, they're just right. They're so mm. brain damaged in their depression.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the second one was one, I think it was last year, a guy came into to me, uh, bipolar 1, And he's been doing, had been doing really well with maintenance and he came in, he was euthymic and I thought, I'm just going to use the same ketamine maintenance dose. We always use fully dissociative dose. Whoops. Mm, Yeah. mm. And uh, I think I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but he got manic and psychotic Mm -hmm. and came and did ECT with you. And, uh, I was so glad again, (laughs) just like, maybe I'm not referring as many people to ECT these days, but so grateful that it's there because sure. if, you, if you need ECT, there's nothing else like it.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and there, and it seems like we're going to learn, I'm sure, and there are, in fact, I think you shared a case where, uh, I don't think it's one of these two, who um, was just sworn off of ECT or maybe not a great ECT responder who came back for and you started ketamine, and that seemed to be the magic uh, cure, if you will, for them. So, again, there's enough variability in how these things work that n- nothing's gonna, you know, the, the more tools we have in the tool, toolbox. With the, the advent
0: better. of ketamine, the emergence of SNT, a supercharged version of TMS, and the medicalization of psilocybin on the horizon, the prospects for helping patients with severe and chronic depression are so much brighter. But still, some people don't respond to ketamine nor TMS, nor ECT, and it's in these cases that we have to ask ourselves, what are we missing? Is the patient not improving because of an alcohol or cannabis dependence? Is there some kind of unresolved trauma or hormonal issues or underlying medical problems such as undiagnosed sleep apnea? Does the patient have love and work, the two core essentials for a psychologically healthy and meaningful life? This leads us back to this idea that depression is not a diagnosis. It's a syndrome. It's a final common pathway. And the job of the therapist and the psychiatrist is to help the patient unearth these often hidden pathways that are fueling the black hole of depression.